and on the TJ Podcast for January. John, Joe and Kate look at some of the content that's been published on TJ this month. They talk about the upcoming Learning Technologies event, a recent merger and acquisition by Calidus, and then Nigel Payne, good friend of TJ, drops in to talk about his brand new blog for Training Journal. All very exciting. Hello everybody, this is John Kennard, editor of TJ, and welcome to the podcast for January. As always, we kick off with the news over in Cardiff with Kate Graham. Uh, a little bit of a warning, the mic levels on this month's podcast are a little bit all over the place, but the content is just as good. So here we go. Okay, so the first podcast of 2021, uh, we welcome back and say a happy new year to Kate Graham of Fosfate Group. How's it going? Happy new year. Well, I'm still here. Um, seen lots of funny memes going around about, uh, you know, they'd like to um, exchange their 2021 after their, you know, seven day free trial. <laughs> it's not what they were expecting. Um, but, you know, still here, still going. Um, you know, there's lots to be, there's lots to be cheerful about. So I think you, my main mantra at the moment is uh, focus on the focus on the positive. Take the win. Yes, likewise. And um, how's things going at Prospect uh, Group? Let's talk about uh, the work you're doing. You've got coming up. It's uh, quite a busy time for you in January. You said. Yeah, really busy. So the um, annual digital learning realities research that we do in partnership with Learning Technologies is is just about to launch. Um, so if you're listening to this, please take part uh, when you see that flying around um, social or if, if you get an email. Um, so last year, obviously, that was quite interesting because we uh, presented the initial headlines at Learning Technologies. And then obviously, the world kind of fell apart sort of immediately afterwards. So it uh, we had to do some interim um, research in, in the sort of later in the year, actually, to kind of get a view of the post-COVID um, world. But that's going to be quite interesting in terms of uh, what's working for people right now, what's not, what do they need, um, you know, because we're not probably, you know, we're not in a post-pandemic world, we're still in a pandemic world, right? Um, so that's launching next week, and our um, learning systems and digital learning nine grids uh, launch at the end of uh, January and February, respectively. Um, and so again, it's it's really interesting to look at how it's impacted um, the market or the, the COVID situation. So, you know, who's done well out of that, who hasn't, um, you know, what's which solutions have, again, really worked for organisations in a crisis moment or under pressure. Um, so there's some really interesting uh, stuff to, to come out of that. And then we're also delving into the kind of the specialisms piece and the ecosystem piece. So actually, what does what do you need? You know, do you need mobile learning solutions within your workforce? And if you do, then how do they talk nicely and fit in with everything else? So um, there's some really like deep research uh, to come out around the the learning specialisms and an ecosystem piece as well. So, yeah, busy, busy. Yeah, just um, on the virtual classroom stuff, some incredible stats as I'm looking at them: a 400% increase uh, in the use of virtual classrooms. I, I mean, this 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 research was obviously a bit of a no-brainer um, when when Barco came to us uh, wanting to to have a look at it and. Um, so it's a it's a custom piece of research we did at the end of, of last year, and yeah, it's pretty much a no brainer to to see how the increase, the initial increase, has happened. But I think the kind of the the real story is when you start to unpack that and and look at how it's being used, um, actually where sort of it's got potential and it's been maybe being underplayed is in things like you know, leadership development, it's never traditionally been been used for that kind of thing, but people can't send their future leaders and managers off for three days in a nice country hotel anymore. So how are they adapting to that? Um, and also like the 19 times increase in using it for coaching and mentoring. I think there's a really interesting uh, piece there around you know, these platforms aren't just about delivery. They are not just about content delivery. Learning is not just about content, right? We've, we've had that conversation before. You know, it's about it's about coaching and mentoring. It's about feedback. It's about reflection. So 
you know, getting away from just the, the training aspect, I suppose, um, I think is interesting. Um, and then the piece that's really sparked a lot of interest, uh, the stat that's really sparked a lot of interest from our new infographic um, is the piece around Teams. So obviously the Microsoft Teams has been massively well adopted um, for virtual classroom purposes and remote learning purposes, um, but only 10% are finding it very effective. Oh. So that's that's caused quite a lot of comment and debate. So, I mean, actually at the time we did the research, they've just they've only just introduced uh, breakout rooms. I mean, the quote um, from one of the qualitative conversations that I had <laughs> whilst we were doing the research was, it breaks my heart that Microsoft Teams doesn't have breakout rooms, right? And obviously Joe Cook, who the listeners will know is, is pretty much the queen of, of all of this stuff. And, and she and I both agreed that, you know, it's being Microsoft Teams is being used for this purpose, but that's actually not what it was designed for. Um, so it's kind of unsurprising in a lot of ways that it's it's not being lauded as, as sort of massively effective because, yeah, it's not, it was intended as a collaboration tool, not as a, you know, not as a, a virtual classroom platform. So it's kind of, um, being squeezed into a, a corner a little bit so yeah it's it's really interesting and I think the the other kind of um, quote that really stands out for me was around whilst we've been in crisis mode this year so this is from a, a large organization large corporate organization that we spoke to you know people have been very patient so if they have to go somewhere else for their breakout session or if there's lots of different links or if it's sort of a bit bitty from an experience point of view people have been very patient um but this uh, this head of lnd's comment was you know there was a sense that in 2021 that patience might start to wear a bit thin um and so there's pressure on lnd to kind of um you know improve that and, and make that as slick and sort of user-friendly as possible so it'll be interesting to check back in in six months and see how some of that stuff changed mm, yeah Another thing that uh, maybe, well, has undergone change last year that may revert back or may not, or may kind of find some kind of happy uh, medium is the events world. Um, Kate, tell us about what's happening with learning technology, something you're usually very close to. Yeah, well, it's it's really weird, you know, to be here in January and not be prepping for, you know, the physical show at Excel. So, um it's quite exciting though because what closer still so the guys at learning technologies obviously um they uh still ran quite a few virtual events last year across uh some of their portfolios so um devlin for example um at what was elliot macy's learning event um the succumbed and um, online educa events as well all happened virtually um, so they've taken a lot of lessons from that. They've got like quite a cool um, new platform. So from, I believe the dates are the 15th to the 26th of February, um, there will be a kind of uh, festival of learning technology happening online. Um, sounds like they've got some really good sessions, but also um, I, I think the key sort of difference is that it isn't just about what would have been conference content so it's, it isn't just a bunch of webinars sort of strung together um there's a lot more to it and this platform kind of enables a lot more uh connection conversation online networking and different kinds of sessions so hosting kind of video chats and things like that so you know really excited to to see it in action and it would just feel plain wrong to have nothing learning technologies related happening at the start of the year so i'm glad that there's there's something happening Remind us quickly of the dates on that. I believe it's the 15th to the 26th of February. 15th to the 26th of Feb, uh, our mm -hmm. first event of the year. Very exciting. And so uh, let's just talk quickly also about um, an acquisition. They are still happening. Calidus, the uh, software company, has acquired Sapling to become what it calls a full human capital management software provider. So this market kind of quietened down a bit. Uh, for obvious reasons last year, but um, Calidus seems to be going from uh, strength to strength. My wife is a paediatric nurse. She uh, did all her vaccine training to possibly convert to, she had her actual vaccine this morning and um, she 
uh, did a lot of training to uh, hopefully support other staff in the coming weeks. And it was all through Calidus. They have got quite a large, large contract with the NHS. So um, it seems they're doing OK. Yeah, historically, uh, they've they've always um, done, done work with the NHS, actually, I mean, many moons ago when they were E2Train, and I was there, um, they they always had got sort of strong links into the NHS. But um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, they uh, have been looking to build out more away from just the learning side, the kind of the talent and performance piece of their portfolio has been building over over the last few years. Um, and obviously it's a lot quicker to acquire some of the HR, HCM functionality than it is to, to build it. Um, obviously, we saw a huge number of acquisitions at the start of 2020. So um, Calidus made a content acquisition with Engage in Learning. Access Group bought Core HR, which was pretty massive. And then sort of Clash of the Titans, Cornerstone acquired Saba. And then obviously, again, COVID hit and all of that sort of stuff stopped. So, again, it, it's just it, it's a little it's another little signal that, um, you know, this market has been sort of not quite pandemic proof. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but, you know, it's still very much alive and kicking. Um, and there is still a lot of opportunity um, for consolidation in the market. So I don't expect to see that slow down anytime soon. Um, and from what I can see, I don't know Sapling very well. They're, they're mostly a US uh, company. Obviously, our research focuses more on, on um, Europe, um, but it looks on paper to be a, a really good fit. Yes, more of that to come, uh, I would assume. Mm. So we've got some events coming up. We've got some uh, aspects of L&D, which is business as usual. Um, the obvious stuff, which uh try not to talk about too much, is a little bit different, but... Um, yeah, looking good. Yeah, hopefully, you know, I mean, there's no two ways about it. You know, I don't think we, you know, anyone would say we are where we wanted to be at the start of 2021, right? But, you know, there are there are reasons to be to be cheerful from, and I still firmly believe, you know, we've had this conversation a lot throughout this kind of pandemic period, but, you know, the need for learning, um, whether that's, you know, reboarding people when uh, after furlough, obviously furlough, people are off on furlough again now, um, reskilling, moving people around, you know, tying back in that kind of talent and people's success story that we've been talking about and talent mobility and all of that kind of stuff. That's more important to organisations now than it's ever been. So bizarrely, although see, budgets are going to be in, in some sectors, particularly because they're going to be under the cosh, you know, in some ways, there's never been a better time to to build the case for for digital learning and for you know for aspects of technology within learning and development. So, I would still say there is an opportunity here um, to really support organisations through this crisis. So, I, I think um, it's tough times for sure, um, but you know, L and D does have a a chance here to to be to become kind of business critical. I think. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Kate, thanks for uh, checking in. Uh, we've got an infographic from you upcoming as well on TJ, so uh, everyone look out for that. Uh, until next month, speak to you soon. Thanks for having me. Well, hello there, TJs. Uh, I spoke to Nigel Payne recently. Nigel Payne is someone I've known for a while, but um, we have never crossed paths in the podcast realm before, so it was really, really good to speak to him. Uh, Nigel has over 25 years of experience in corporate learning. He's a regular speaker, writer, and broadcaster. Uh, between 2002 and 2006, he headed up the BBC's L&D operation. Uh, a man of incredible experience and he teaches on a doctoral programme at an Ivy League university in America. He's written three books. Uh, he presents Learning Now TV, of course, uh, on a monthly basis uh, with Kate Graham, um, co-host of the podcast. And he does another weekly podcast with Martin Cousins, who's someone who uh, TJ is involved with from time to time as well. So he's been on my radar and TJ's radar for a long time. Uh, it's great to get his opinions on a variety of things, but mostly we talked about the fact that he's starting a blog for TJ, which is very exciting. Uh, and we also talked about how his 2020 has been and um, how he's very hopeful for next year. So do sit back with a cup of tea and enjoy. Some people have 
been able to use this the, the lockdown periods that we've had over 2020 as uh, incubation periods for ideas. I've seen a lot of people publishing books and the like, um, and using this time quite creatively. Have you have you had a creative 2020? Hi, John. It's good to talk to you. Uh, it, kind of. I started off because in about March, I think second week of March, I looked at my calendar and literally it, everything was just wiped off the face of the earth. Everything that was there. And I had a really busy, exciting year. I was really looking forward to 2020. And I was going to some new places, like I was going to be going to Mexico three times to, to work with a whole bunch of companies in there. And it just, everything just disappeared. And I, I went to I went to about two weeks of deep depression, I suppose, just not really focusing and, and thinking, what am I going to do? You know, I'm going to go bankrupt. Uh, how am I going to feed myself? And astonishingly, I, I gave myself a good talking to and said, this is ridiculous. There are huge advantages in not having to be in places and being able to connect in different ways. And funnily enough, the year came back slowly, steadily, differently, it came back. So I'm incredibly busy. You know, it's been really busy for the last four or five months and we'll continue that way right the way through to uh, early next year. So I, I'm, I've enjoyed it, I think, in retrospect. And there are some things that I'm doing that I could never have contemplated. One little thing which has got absolutely nothing to do with work is that I've got an eight-year-old grandchild and I was really worried about the fact that I wasn't able to go. She's in Australia. I wasn't able to go to Australia that it would be a breach between us because I'd always been very close to her. So I said, let's just read a book together. How about that? I'll read to you in, the, in my morning, her, her afternoon. And she said, all right. And I thought, well, we, if we get through one book. So I picked a really short book to start with and we read it. And she said, can we read another book? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So anyway, since April, I've read virtually every day at 7 a.m. to this child. And we're now on our 11th book. Now, that has been a joy and really interesting for me and uh, communication with her, intense communication with her that w wouldn't have happened otherwise. So there, there are some definite upsides. Plus, I've been able to do some research and I've worked my way through academic libraries online. Books, some books I can't get, but there's a lot of stuff I can. So I've been writing, thinking, uh, contemplating and and working, doing lots and lots of online communication with people and uh, in groups. I'm teaching on a doctoral program, which was face-to-face, -face, switched to online. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of into it now. I'm, I've settled down. I feel I know much more what I'm doing. And I've learned to pace myself. You know, I always do uh, a piece of exercise first thing in the morning. I'm doing some Wim Hof breathing every morning. I read to my granddaughter every morning. So I, I kind of prepare for my day and then get into it. And I'm trying to stop at a reasonable time in the evening, so I'm not working till midnight. And uh, it's been terrific. And I've also spent more time with my wife than, than I've ever spent continuously for maybe 15 years. And I think she found that more of a, more of a culture shock than I did. I kind of got used to it. She kept saying, are you still here? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm still here. And I'm not going anywhere. So it's, it's been a very interesting, challenging, but full of learning for me. Yeah, good stuff. I, I'm. Uh, it's good to hear positive stories about how people have been spending their time because uh, it has been a challenging year for a lot of people. Very excitingly, you're starting a blog for TJ. So uh, tell us a bit about what you'll be talking about there. Well, I, I really want to get at things that really struck me. So uh, I want to get at things that are challenging, things that are uh, not obvious, and things that will be useful to TJ readers. So it's not going to be just, you know, uh, th there's an interesting piece of software which I looked at yesterday. It's going to be, this is going to change the world. And uh, and they might be bits of philosophy and maybe bits of technology. It may be ideas and it may be what other people have done that I think is really groundbreaking. So it's about groundbreaking stuff, things that really excite me. And I'm going to share those with you regularly. Brilliant. Really looking forward to that. We also, when we were kind of planning for this talk, as as well as kind of uh, planning the blog when we we spoke a while ago, um, you said you'd been uh, to quite a few events as as a participant, as a speaker, as a delegate um, in a few different guises. And you said, let's say that some of the events have been uh, hit and miss. So 
what companies for you have, have, have got it right over the last few months and, and what not necessarily naming names, of course, but what have they got wrong in your opinion? Well, uh, what, what I think companies have got wrong, I have this um, slide which I've used for about two years, which I, got, which I got from Capgemini, which was about the difference between translation and transformation. And it, I used it when we we're talking about digital learning, digital age learning. And what I was saying was, and I still believe this, that if you simply translate from analog to digital, you are going to waste a lot of time. You're going to do something that's pretty mediocre and you're not going to think deeply enough. If you want to really be digital age, you've got to transform, rethink. And that's exactly true of conferences. So that the ones who had a three-day conference face-to-face -face and turned it into a three-day conference online have done some really their lack of thinking has become really tedious and i never managed to stick anywhere near a day of an online conference so the ones who approached it a bit more imaginatively stretching the the, the conference out and having shorter days having f fewer people speaking but more discussion uh, around the the content and in attempting to galvanize the the uh, participants in a way that you don't get to do in most conferences and those that that mixed different modes of learning like um v will tolheimer's conference which, which went on for six weeks <laughs> and i i didn't sustain the full six weeks that was a long time but what he did was he combined a, a, a learning platform where participants uh, or the, the speakers created an hour's learning material, not, not a presentation, which was available asynchronously, backed up by synchronous discussions and then synchronous debates and a few ideas that had emerged on the, in the course of the conference. So it didn't have a huge number of people, but the ones who were there were really dedicated to it and they kept popping up again and again. So it was a, it was a real mixture of what could be done differently given the opportunities using the technology that we have available to us. And I think that's, that's the ones that I'm most impressed by, the people who've had a think about how they can redo, reimagine and transform and not just translate. Because, oh, you know, hours and hours, I, sp I have spent hours and hours continuously online and it's, and it's not a great experience when you just go from one person to the next person to the next person. It really isn't. So that, that, that's the, they're the things that I've noticed going over the last six or eight months. I've just got one more question, and it's a bit about some of your recent work, actually. I've seen you speak at events over the years several times about uh, leadership, but also um, about learning culture and, and uh, what goes into that. So, I mean, the, the world's obviously changed a lot. Let's look to 2021. And what do you think next year will bring uh, to learning culture and and maybe workplace culture more generally, do you think? I think that's a really interesting question. And um, I, I have to make sure I don't bore everyone by going on and on about it. But in some ways, what, what's happened in the last six months has not been anything particularly new coming in, but that everything that was a tendency has been accelerated. So that I, my learning culture model Whereas what I'm saying is you really have to create the right conditions for learning culture before you bother trying to implement learning culture. It's a waste of time saying tomorrow we're all in a learning culture and we're all going to really learn and share when, the, when everything in the organization is screaming at people saying, don't do that, you'll get fired, it's too dangerous. So the conditions are important. And that's been borne out. You know, that I, I've watched the difference between successful organizations and unsuccessful ones in managing the pandemic and it's all about creating the right conditions so i you know we're not going to go back again and, and uh, to where we were for, uh, for sure I, I and i also don't think we're going to stay 100 percent living in the way we're living now because it's not satisfactory in many ways but there are elements which are great one is the autonomy increased autonomy of people of people at work the second is creating that sense of purpose and, and the challenge of having to fix things on the run. And the third is a, an enabling leadership where people, leaders, instead of saying, get down there, Kennard, why haven't you done that? I asked you to do that by four o'clock, are saying, John, how can I help you? 
Is there anything that I can do to make it easier for you to deliver that? So what we're, we're seeing is I think the failure of micromanagement and toxic leadership, we're, we're seeing a definite need for increased autonomy and, and increased engagement of the workforce and just getting out the way. What, what it's shown is that staff who've been allowed to just fix it themselves, work out ways of operating, have been far more successful than those that sit back and say, tell me what to do now, please, sir, you know, or madam. I've, I've done my two allocated tasks for yesterday. So I, I think this is a real sea change. It's like a penny dropping, you know, whoa, look at the difference in this company's productivity against that company, all to do with the conditions that they've created. And basically the heart of a learning culture, creating communities that learn and share and fix problems together. That's my definition of a learning culture. So I, I'm really optimistic about the next few years. I think we're, we will never go back and we've seen the disappearance and the failure of some of the most negative and appalling tendencies of modern organizations. At least I really hope uh, the, the disappearance of those tendencies. It's so great to finish with uh, someone being so so positive about next year. It's uh, things very much needed, you know. Um, but also uh, really looking forward to you starting your blog for TJ. And uh, thanks a lot for talking to us today. John, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, it is content time. And it is my great pleasure to introduce for the first podcast of 2021, Lightbulb Moments, Joe Cook. Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year. I am very well, thank you. And lovely to be with you at the beginning of another fresh brand new year. Yes, absolutely. Uh, are you a New Year's resolutions type person? And if so, why and what uh, are you going to make resolutions about? And if not, um, how come? I'm not. No, Um I never really have been because I think the trouble is they can they can be a bit of a one hit wonder that's probably not the right phrase but you can be like yay January resolutions and then by the mid January you're just like nah give me the wine give me the cake give me the TV what you know whatever your thing is that you're trying to avoid um, and what I've tried to do over the last few years instead is just have a more consistent, which is not a key word that I use about myself very often, um, but a more consistent approach to personal development, which I find, you know, that little and often uh, kind of thing is perhaps more impactful for me personally, but for other people it works and that's really cool. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I'm not really a resolutions person, although I do kind of get swept up in it because a lot of other people do it. I am doing dry January um, during oh, a lockdown. Oh, well done. Well, during a lockdown, is it a good idea? I don't know. Um, maybe it is a real time. <laughs> well, there's lo lots of comments kind of on, what, the 6th of January, 7th of January, people going, well, there goes dry January. Yeah. You know, with with world events um, as they were, people kind of giving up on that. But I did forget Veganuary a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I did do that, even though it wasn't a, a resolution as such. Well, I'm doing, I'm doing pescatarian as I like to call it <laughs> uh, and as no one else seems to call it um so we are um me and my wife are not eating meat but we are eating fish and generally trying to eat more healthily for the first time we're going for one of those subscription food box things ah. we're using HelloFresh but there are plenty of other brands out there that do a similar thing first one arrives today in fact this is Wednesday the 12th, 13th of January so we'll see how that goes to to uh, sort of Tell a quick story about some jeans I bought over the summer. We will talk about L&D in a minute, promise. <laughs> <laughs> no, do tell us about your jeans, John. I'm sure it will, will have an impact on our discussion well, later. It is, it is actually quite a good story. So so um, I bought a pair of jeans from a company called Hyatt, who are based in Cardigan in West Wales. And uh, Cardigan used to be uh, one of the main denim manufacturers for M&S before they moved their factories elsewhere. And so they had these kind of skilled jeans making people and and uh, no business so someone took over the factory and set up this company and their whole motto uh the company is called Hyatt they they uh, is do one thing well so they all they do is make jeans and it's all about doing okay. one thing well they've got manuals about how to kind of improve yourself on a day-by-day -day basis the, the, the book's called one percent better and I think that's a really good if we, we could talk about the bigger picture of kind of specialism versus generalism and all that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But they talk about just making jeans, doing it really well, 
be one percent better every day, and then that will kind of cumulatively make you better. So I think so. Something I'm going to try to do this year. Yes, and and you brought that into the topic of what we're talking about very nicely. Um, to broaden that out, because our first point is actually about are we hindering 95% of people in our organisation to stop the 5% that break the rules? So uh, it's a quite a nice segue, I think, isn't it? Um, I, I get your hint. We, we need to move on, yes. Um, so the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to do it in a kind way, though, John. I'm taking my key from you. That's good. That's good. I, I'm, I, uh, I thought it was a good segue. Um, so, yes, the first piece is called Are You Hindering 95% to Stop the 5%? Break the Rules by Stephen Van Bellingham, who is a thought leader, speaker, author on customer engagement. He has a new book out called The Offer You Can't Refuse. But yes, the piece is about, essentially, um, he's, he kicks off with a story about visiting Evernote, the, um, I guess, tech startup uh, note-taking and um, uh, creativity tool. Do you use Evernote, Jay? Do you know? I don't know. I, I have played with it and I know of the genre um, for uh, I used to do a lot of uh, GTD or get get things done um, stuff. And I know it's good for that. And lots of people absolutely love it. So really good. Yeah, uh, I used to use it. I have, I have actually uh, moved away from it. But when I did use it, it was uh, very useful. Anyway, he talks about Evernote and uh, he tells quite a funny story about going to their offices and seeing a vending machine. Uh, but it wasn't full of uh, drinks, snacks, etc. It was full of tech items like uh, mouses, mice, not sure. Um, yeah, I noticed in the article it said mouses. And I was like, hmm. Anyway, carry on. I'm, I'm going with mouses. I don't like mice. And so the idea was that uh, employees could go up to this vending machine and get the items of the tech accessories that they needed, keyboards, etc. And someone said, well, how do you know that they're not just going to rip things off? And they're like, well, we just trust our employees, which is... You know, the, the whole article hinges on trust, basically, but also the idea that rules are made mm -hmm. for the people that the, the very minor um, portion of employees and the workforce that break them rather than setting your company up to say, well, this is what we can do. These are the rules to to kind of empower you to, yeah. to, to, to grow or to think or to create and these sorts of things. So I think it's a really good, positive way to kick off January, really. Yeah, because in, in that story, the, the guy who asked the question of what happens if people steal this stuff, um, they asked how you do it in your company. Because, oh, well, there's a process that involves IT support teams and line managers and department heads and finance have to sign it off and blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm pretty certain everybody will groan and know that they've had some version of that experience in their, their work or personal life somewhere. And you just think, I just need a new keyboard. <laughs> it's like the W key doesn't work. I need a new keyboard. And, and just to be able to go and do that just removes all that stress, all that time of all those people involved, the, the processes and all of that, and the cost of that, you know, mental, physical, and, and literally financial cost. So I loved this article. Good stuff. Yeah, um, me too. And I, uh, I'm going to, going to just finish wrapping up um, talking about this piece with the quote we pulled out actually I don't think it can really sum it up better which is uh, Stephen says a culture of building processes and procedure for the 95% and making life as easy as possible for the good people is the kind of change that will help you succeed seems obvious but worth repeating yeah, really good. And actually following on from this is another piece, uh, why organisations need to hire a hybrid working support officer. And this is by Frank Weishaupt, who is the uh, CEO of Owls Labs. And it kind of takes that idea about uh, about trusting people and it picks up on, uh, we didn't talk about it in that 95% article, there's a bit in there about homeworking as well. And uh, I, I can't remember, I'm sure I must have shared this on the podcast before, but years and years and years ago, when I was working, there was occasions where I would work from home for whatever reason. And I always found it really interesting that my manager, who was a senior manager in the department, she might go traveling, she might uh, go to other offices, she might be in meetings all day, there could be a week or two or three weeks where I don't see her that I just carried on with my work. But on the days where I wanted to work from home or had to work from home for whatever reason, I had to send her an email in the morning saying, I'm going to work on X, Y, Z today. And then in the afternoon, as I finished work, say, I achieved X and Y 
but not Z for whatever reason or, or whatever it might be. And that was a trust issue. And I just thought, I cannot see you for three weeks when you're off at head office and it doesn't matter. But the one day I'm working from home, you need this level of control in it. I always hated it. And, uh, you know, you do it because it's what your boss says you have to do and so on. But this trust element and then the article uh, by Frank uh, Weishaupt really goes into that point about trust and about how productivity works. Not for everyone in every industry, but in a lot of industries, this flexibility and this homeworking really has... Uh, worked this year um, and I think that's a really great article that you shared as well yeah um, I, I think well I hope that the trust issue is going to kind of vanish and I mean that's that's rather lofty hope to have for this year but I think you know, yeah. um, but, but I, I, I think a lot of companies um, you know week by week month by month will understand that it is the way forward uh, whether people come back to the office or not, and you know there there is going to to a certain degree be people going back to the office, not in such great numbers, but um, I think that there will be a lot more trust uh, between companies, not across the board. I don't know if you could you could not. I don't know if you could zero in on particular industries where some might um, be more trust uh, trustful than others, um, possibly, but. Um, yeah, I think the idea of a hybrid working support officer is really good because I think it is a, a, a new thing, a big thing for a lot of people, and it is a big leap to make, but I think it is an important one, and it's here to stay, and that's good. And I think, you know, to, to kick the article off by saying that flexibility creates possibilities, I think is a very good positive way to frame it, you know, uh, because it it, it is a, yeah. a huge change for a lot of people. Um, me and you have done it for a long time. Uh, we've pretty kitted out. That's good. Um, but uh, it isn't the same. I actually put a picture on my yeah. on my LinkedIn story or whatever they call it of uh, my uh, my new laptop stand is a book of uh, nursing care of infants and children, which is about four inches thick. Um, so you know, everyone modifies their workspaces accordingly. Well, absolutely. I've got my microphone sat on a box, sat on my notebook, sat on a really good book that Laura Overton sent me. Actually, called The Art of Gathering um, by Priya Parker, which I'm reading through. It's about how we come together and what the purpose is and how you can improve it and stuff. Uh, so that was really lovely of Laura to send it to me. It's a really good read. So maybe we should talk about that another day. Definitely. Uh, we can talk about it now. Okay. Well, I mean, it's it's basically what it says on the tin. It's the idea of when we come together, and obviously we would look at this from an L&D training facilitation point of view, but there are all sorts of reasons to gather. And that could be anything from a wedding through to friends going on holiday once a year, whatever it might be. Um, and there, there must be an, an innate purpose behind it. And that sometimes these things fail, for want of a better word, um, or have challenges when everybody has different expectations. So we all know what that's like you, around Christmas is a really good example. Most Christmases, um, and in the UK, we had a certain amount of lockdown and, and things like that over Christmas, which caused a lot of challenge for a lot of people. Um, but if we think of a more traditional Christmas a couple of years ago, there's always that challenge of, you know, if you've got kids, which grandparents do you go to see? Who comes to you? Where do you go? What's is it? Is it fun, relaxed Christmas? Is it posh Christmas? You know, and there's all of these different things pulling at you. And ultimately, someone's going to be disappointed. Someone's going to be stressed and so on. And the point, I'm only about a third of the way through the book, but the point that I'm picking up here is if you define that really well ahead of time, it helps you make decisions. It's, you know, even something simple like which plates do we use for Christmas dinner um, could be something simple because if you're going for that relaxed Christmas, it's like, well, we're in pyjamas um, and so let's just use the everyday crockery and it doesn't matter if it gets broken. But if you're going for high-end Christmas, it's like, let's get the special stuff out um, and pay attention to it and maybe not be drunk by lunchtime <laughs> or whatever it is. But it helps you make decisions. I'm probably doing um, Priya Parker a really bad injustice yeah. here. Um, but it's it's really insightful. And it's also insightful about our job. And, and actually, I was coaching somebody recently around the virtual classroom stuff. And, and this 
this part of this book really came into it because she was struggling around her accountability and her role in terms of facilitating a group. And it was more of that management facilitation than it was training, although that was part of it too. And, and this book makes the point of if you are the host, and that could be teacher, trainer, facilitator as well, it's your job to host it. You have accountability. You can't just leave that because things will fall apart. And it's just little things like that that I think can be applied. And I'm really enjoying it. So, Laura, once again, thank you very much. She knows me really well. And the book's really colourful on the front as well. Good stuff. Thank you, Laura. Um, <clears throat> I actually thought you meant gathering as in like hoarding uh, when you first said that. I ah, well, I could talk about that too, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> But rather than talking about hoarding and cluttering, uh, because that would be a very long conversation, um, let's have a look at our last piece that we want to do, John, which is about trends, isn't it? Yes, uh, five HR trends to watch in 2021. Uh, this is from Deb Muller, who is founder and CEO of HR Acuity. And this is kind of in line with our decision to expand the remit of TJ a little bit, which we've been doing for a few months anyway, but uh, to focus a bit more on the kind of the HR side of things and the talent side of things, not so much uh, recruitment, but certainly the work that HR does within the business rather than mm. the stuff it does outside. So well, it's Ellen, L&D is so often part of HR or at least alongside HR, not, not for every business, but I think it makes absolute sense. We work hand in hand so often. Mm, yeah, I think so too. And uh, this, this piece is uh, kind of a... Uh, something to look out for. They're always good to publish these at the start of the year and then maybe at the end of 2021 in December see actually uh, how accurate they were. But mm. um, so, so Deb's HR trends for this year, I'm just going to go through them one by one, then we can talk. The strategic elevation of HR and employee relations will continue. Uh, community and collaboration will become even more critical. Communication will be vital pretty undeniable. Data will drive greater accountability and companies will move from commitment to action on DE&I, which I'm assuming is diversity, equality and inclusion. Joe, any of those jump out at you? Oh, I really liked, uh, well, all of them. Uh, the community and collaboration is really good. I think there's a lot of stuff around humanising people. And ironically, I was just chatting uh, before we came on a podcast with somebody about humanizing things like numbers. Um, there was a tweet that I saw about saying, well, there's so many thousands of people in the UK have died from COVID and it was 80,000 or something. And you think, oh gosh, that's an awful number. And what they'd done is they'd retweeted a video of, I think it was the Olympic Stadium in London, and there was a Mexican wave going around and saying, that's pretty much the number of people that were in this stadium. I, I might have my numbers slightly wrong. But the point was, all of a sudden, you can see this stadium of people and it made it much more real, the volume of people. So, so that idea about humanising our, our communities, uh, the work that we do together, how we connect with each other. And a lot of that obviously is remote, as we, we talked about just now, I think is really, really good. And, and that elevation of HR and employee relations and the work that L&D do and the continuation of that is really strong, too. I do agree with all that, but I find it interesting that point number four about about data and the, the greater reliance on mm -hmm. and leveraging of data uh, is kind of in opposition to the idea of humanising for me a little bit, which doesn't mean they can't work together and will be part, mm -hmm. part of the same strategy or whatever, but kind of you're taking data points and, and bringing them to life, as it were, by using the Olympic Stadium example, when that's kind of doing the opposite of what data is doing, which is taking human stories and then kind of crunching them and, and turning them into graphs. Don't you think? Well, I, yeah, I can see at, at, a, at, a, at a certain level, I think you're right, because that's what data does. Data is about numbers and trends and amalgamation and analysis. But data on its own is just numbers. It's only when you put it into a context and an environment, and then you humanize it again, that's when you look at what, what can we do about this. Um, and I, th I think 
that's what we're looking at here. I mean, in the article, it says here, HR leaders are looking for data that helps them identifying positive or negative results linked to individual leaders, regions or initiatives. And that's the important part. That's the context is, you know, if if Bob, the leader, has got an amazing result here about something, well, what's Bob doing? Well, how is he doing that? And how can we get that out to everybody else so that everybody can have that positive impact? And I think it's the bringing of those two things together, which is the key part. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Interesting, I pulled out a quote actually from that very same paragraph, which is um, about predictive analytics. Uh, Predictive analytics can assist HR with identifying issues before they become widespread, improving accountability and consistency, which, you know, uh, predictive analytics is something which I I guess it's it's been a a buzzword for a while. It's been a, a popular term for a a long time and it's always been say featured quite highly on Don Taylor's L&D survey which he does uh, around kind of the winter time at the start of the year but it's something that goes on in the background and it's something that is say a feature of the AI that sits underneath your 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 HCM system or something like that Um, and I think if it can um, find out where bottlenecks are or where performance can be improved and things like that then 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 great and I I think that yeah, of course, data is going to play a big part. But like you said, it's about context, it's about what you do with it then and how you can how you can rehumanize it. Um, it's a word I've just created there, Jay. <laughs> I'm loving your work. OK, so that was the three content pieces from the month. But um, we're just going to talk about uh, your passion survey quickly. Jay. Yes. Talk, talk to us a bit more about that. Tell us about your passion survey. So uh, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast. Uh, 2019, I was on a, uh, a panel and one of the things that came up was what makes you passionate about your role. So I just tweeted out and got some results and there was quite a few answers. I coded them up. And it was just interesting. And I thought I'd do that again. And especially last year, I know how my work around the pandemic um, has really impacted my passion and what I think. So I just wanted to ask what other people thought. Uh, So there's a few different questions. And if you go to lightbulbmoment.info, you'll see my uh, blog about it. It's got a link to the survey. And I just like put out a couple of things. So fairly obviously, it won't surprise you to know that nearly, I don't know, 90% of something like that of people categorized that their passion falls into helping people and making a difference. Um, there was loads of other categories as well. And that out of if they had to select just one of them, you know, that was uh, a huge part of what they were doing. And what was interesting was some of the responses from people um, that they wrote is about making life easier for others, enabling people, igniting opportunities for learning, supporting people to develop, all of those things, which are maybe kind of you'd expect from people working in L&D, which I think was really nice. I also asked about what makes people passionate about L&D as an industry. And this is where some really interesting results came in. There were some good things like L&D is filled with amazing people. It's varied, changing, curiosity and stuff like that. But also things like relatively little. The industry is too insular, in my opinion. What do you think about that contrast? Interesting. Um, I, I, You get a okay. You get occasional comments like that, some of which I think are justified in in the ways that I think you will go to events. Um, there, there's kind of the the circuit of events that happens, you know. Um, let's call it the before times because I think that phrase <laughs> is really funny. But um, but uh, so there's there's a cycle of events every year, and you go to the big ones, and you'll see some of the same people. And I think at the moment. I am desperate to see those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, really miss face-to-face events. And that's one thing I hope for this year is that uh, physical events come back. But before all this happened, you could have justifiably said that you see a, a very similar group of people in the speaking slots, which I think would lead people to say that L&D is kind of atrophied a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where maybe people's frustrations are. So that's why also uh, I really appreciate uh, things like the unconferences that have been run where you get new people mm-hmm. involved and it's and it's kind of democratized uh, events a little bit. I would say mostly that um, I don't know if it's LND's fault that it's insular because there's a constant battle and this has gone on as long as I've been involved with learning and development adjacent anyway for the last 10 years odd where the LD departments are constantly trying to get kind of leverage and get 
respect and, and get heard and noticed and all the work that they do in the bigger picture of their companies. Is that L&D's fault? I don't know. Maybe they are insular, but maybe maybe it's something more endemic to do with the businesses that they're placed in. Who knows? What do you think? I think it's it's so subjective depending on where you are, what your experiences are, the industry you're in, and all of those different things, like you say. And certainly there are the more critical people in L&D that will say similar things to what you've said and more. Um, I always like to look on the positive, if I'm honest. And some of those people that, that do the circuit, like you say, I like to think it's because actually most of them have got a really important message and they deliver it really well and they make an impact there are pockets where that's not the case. Um, but also, like you say, with the unconferences, um, I know Don Taylor and other people that run conferences are really keen to get a different mix of people involved. And I'm seeing that a lot more, which is really good. And then you've got people like Andrew Jacobs and other people as well, who say, I won't speak on your podcast panel, whatever it might be, unless there's a 50-50 representation of male to female. So a lot of that is changing. And mm. speaking of change, one of the other things I asked in the survey is how the COVID pandemic affected your passion, whether you know maybe it cemented your passion. So it did for me. So that's where that question came from. Or whether it helped you work it out. Did you get to work on the stuff that makes you passionate or not? And so some interesting results have come from that. And also then ask, just ask for people to say, is there anything else that you want to share about that? And people are saying things like, it's helped me get clear about what's important. Um, it's been a year of forced disruption. Um, and so there's a long way to go before we regain the level of work satisfaction we were at before. Uh, somebody else said, I've been lucky that my business has just flown. So, you know, as with all things such as wars, for instance, you know, some businesses and people will thrive, other people won't. And there's lots and lots of really interesting things to share in here. And I'll, I'll write some stuff about it for TJ, if you like, but also I will share all of the data uh, that comes out of that as well so that people can see the raw information if they want to. Yeah, really looking forward to um, seeing the results of the survey, Joe, and um, would love to publish something about it. Um, okay, that is... Uh, that's enough. I think we're going to cap it there, but it's been brilliant to talk to you, talk about the content, talk about the survey and uh, looking forward to next month where, where we are going to be talking about how to say no. That's going to be an interesting article. Workplace trends, uh, the digital revolution, boardroom diversity. Uh, I've got an interview with the co-founder of Instagram uh, about their learning strategy, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, more exciting stuff as well, which I'm not going to share right now, but uh, <laughs> already. Well, you've whetted my appetite, let alone anyone else. I'm looking forward to it, John. And on that note, John, lovely chatting to you and see you next month. See you next month. Yay. Oh, that was really good. The TJ Podcast is hosted by John Kennard, Joe Cook and Kate Graham. Is produced by me, John Kennard, and mixed and edited by Digital Skills People. Title music is by The Ledger All Stars featuring Yolanda. The sponsorship music is by Audio Nautics and is used under a Creative Commons license. TJ is a publishing title owned by Dodds Group PLC.